0: This series is still in production. So if you have any insights, documents, or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at RTE.ie. That's documentaries at RTE.ie.
1: This episode is about how the plan to illegally import guns, allegedly by members of the Irish government, is coming together. And in danger of falling apart. And in a moment you're going to hear some pretty strange events, like the death of a man pretending to be someone else a cameo appearance from the best-selling author Frederick Forsyth, and the mention of the word muzzy.
0: You're listening to episode four of Gun Plot. I'm Nicolene Greer, and together with my colleague Ronan Kelly and the RTE Documentary and One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen the arms crisis of 1970. And remember, you can catch Gunplot, the TV documentary, on the RTE player.
1: Muzzy, it means confused or blurred. It relates to many aspects of the arms crisis story but particularly to the hospital briefing Peter Berry gave the Taoiseach on the Bailey Borough meeting the one we heard about at the end of episode 3. Let's rewind a moment to that point.
0: Peter Berry was the civil servant who controlled the Garda Special Branch and in October 1969 he was in hospital in Dublin. And although he was in hospital He was still working and still being briefed on IRA activities, which was a particular preoccupation of his. He had got word that members of the IRA had met an Irish army captain at a meeting in a hotel in Baileyborough County, Cavan.
1: The reports came back that this army officer, Captain Kelly, had what was described as a wad of cash, which he offered the IRA men so they could buy guns.
0: Peter Berry was so alarmed at this that he asked to see the Taoiseach, the leader of the Irish government, a man named Jack Lynch.
1: Lynch came to Berry's hospital bedside and they spoke. And as the Taoiseach left that meeting, we left you with a couple of questions.
0: What was the leader of the government going to do now? After all, if you remember, he had just made a speech saying that there was to be no violence in the Irish government's dealing with the North.
2: It has been the government's policy to seek the reunification
3: of our country by peaceful means.
1: So, given what Peter Berry had told Jack Lynch about the IRA and the Bailey Borough meeting, was the Taoiseach going to shut down the whole project to import
0: guns? Well, no, he wasn't. He wasn't going to do anything. And the reason, Jack Lynch said, was because Peter Berry never told him about Bailey Borough.
1: Who said what to whom and the muzzy nature of people's recollections is the overriding question of the events in the crisis of the Irish government in 1969-70.
0: And it was central to the court proceedings which followed soon after. These trials gripped the country at the time.
4: I suggest to you gentlemen...
0: And they were so important that one of the judges took the unusual step of ordering the proceedings be recorded on audio tape as well as by stenographer...
4: I say, gentlemen, that there should never have been a prosecution...
0: Lately, some of those tapes were discovered by journalist Michael Heaney and they now form part of this series with the permission of the court. And I say
4: to you, gentlemen, that you can do your duty in this case in only one way and that is by returning your verdict of not guilty. I kept my minister informed...
0: One of the tapes includes the cross-examination of Captain James Kelly of Irish Army Intelligence.
4: And On any occasion when I sought out the minister to convey to him information which I thought he should have, the minister had no hesitation in meeting...
1: This Captain Kelly was the man who chaired the meeting in Baileyborough with the groups trying to protect Catholic areas from attack in the north, the Defence Committees. That meeting led to the encounter in the Dublin hospital between the civil servant Peter Berry and the Taoiseach Jack Lynch. And that encounter between the man in charge of police intelligence and the leader of the government is one of the most disputed events in the arms crisis of 1969-70. Because Peter Berry said he told Jack Lynch then that there was a plot to import guns illegally. And Jack Lynch said he did not.
5: Unfortunately, the medical tests commenced at about 8.30am.
1: Years later, Peter Berry's memories were published, and here's how he described what happened, as read by an actor.
5: I had been given an injection, and rubber tubing had been inserted through a nostril to the stomach before the Taoiseach arrived sometime after nine o'clock. There were two doctors and two nurses in the room, and while they left to make way for the Taoiseach, a nurse kept coming in and out every couple of minutes to siphon off liquid through the tubing. After our conversation was interrupted a couple of times, the Taoiseach said petulantly, "'This is hopeless. I'll get in touch with you again.' I did not have a 100% recollection of my conversation with the Taoiseach on the 17th of October, as I was a bit muzzy and bloody from the medical tests, but I'm quite certain that I told him of Captain Kelly's prominent part in the Bailey meeting with known members of the IRA, of his possession of a wad of money, of his standing drinks and of the sum of money that would be made available for the purchase of arms.
0: Jack Lynch denied that this was what was said.
1: But then later, the Director of Army Intelligence contradicted that.
0: Colonel Michael Heffern said that the Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons, told him that the Taoiseach knew about the Bailyboro meeting.
1: The Minister for Defence, Jim Gibbons, denied he said that.
0: So here's your first point of confusion, or muzziness. The two heads of state intelligence, Berry and Hefferin, said that the Taoiseach was told something. But Taoiseach Lynch and Minister for Defence Gibbons said he was not. Confusing. Yes, confusing for us. And corrosive for those involved in this world of contradiction and denial. For example, this is Martin Gibbons, the son of Minister for Defence Jim Gibbons.
5: My father was thrown to the wolves. He was totally ostracised.
1: And this is Colm Heffron, son of the Director of Military Intelligence, Colonel Michael Heffron. These people were pilloried and their reputations were viciously and vexatiously damaged, forever. We'll learn more about these two men and the dilemmas they faced later in the series. But for now, we're back in mid-October 1969. And two days after that hospital meeting, another confused event. But this time, one that ended in awful tragedy.
0: This is the hydroelectric power station in Ballyshannon, in Donegal, in the Irish Republic, just over the border from Northern Ireland. On Sunday, October 19th, 1969, the local Catholic parish priest got an urgent message to hurry to the power station to attend to a man who had injured himself there. The man had broken into the power station grounds with explosives, and it looked like he was with the IRA. Trying to blow up the power station. But while trying to set the bomb, he had electrocuted himself. The priest was being called to give him the last rites. When the priest arrived, the man was still alive, only just, but his clothes had blown off him. A guard detective at the scene went through the man's belongings. It turned out he was named Thomas McDouell, a quarry worker from County Down, way over on the eastern side of Ulster. He was married with ten children.
1: If Thomas MacDool was conscious then, the last person he would want to see leaning over him was a Catholic priest. Because while the detective was going through his things, he came across an armband with the letters UVF on it. These stood for Ulster Volunteer Force, a Protestant Loyalist paramilitary group. MacDool wasn't an IRA man at all, but a Loyalist terrorist. He was carrying out a so-called false flag operation. That is... He was trying to make it look as if the IRA were planting bombs in power stations. This had already been done back in County Down where Thomas MacDool was from. Local Protestant paramilitaries had bombed public water facilities, hoping that people would blame the IRA. And a clue as to why Thomas MacDool was trying to blow up the power station at Ballyshannon lies in what he was doing earlier that Sunday, in October 1969. He had just read the lesson at a church service in his local church, before driving across Ulster to Donegal to plant the bomb. And his church was pastored by this man.
2: I want to say that this wafer... The
1: Reverend Ian Paisley.
2: After it is consecrated, the Church of Rome teaches is the actual body, bones, blood...
0: Paisley preached anti-Catholicism and organised protests against efforts by the Northern Irish government to try to make the society fairer.
2: Who was Sean LeMass? He was the man that murdered British troops on the streets of Dublin in the 1916 Rebellion. His hand was stained with the blood of our kith and kin. My hand will never shake hands with yeah, a murderer.
0: Those bombs, planted by Ian Paisley's supporters at the water facilities in County Down, had already led to the resignation of the Northern Irish Prime Minister.
2: Tonight, on Captain O'Neill's doorstep, as Ulster loyalists and Ulster Protestants, we are masters in our own house! And now,
0: in the autumn of 1969, Ian Paisley and his supporters were pushing back against further reforms like the disbandment of the B-specials.
2: Officers and special members of the special constabulary.
0: And
1: Ian Paisley's supporter, Thomas McDool, two days after he tried to bomb the power station in Donegal, he died.
3: The Hunt Committee has recommended the disbandment of the B-specials in the six counties.
1: But and the reforms the he worked against as as went ahead.
3: The use of firearms would be strictly limited and the RUC would cease to have automatic weapons...
0: Self-loading rifles, New laws were brought cars. in to provide equal voting rights in Northern Ireland. Within six months, the B-specials were disbanded and within two years, responsibility for public housing was taken away from the local councils.
1: But those reforms weren't going to change Northern Ireland overnight. For the rest of 1969, shooting and rioting continued... And down south, the plan to buy guns also continued. The money for those guns was available from the Irish government, through the Minister for Finance, Charles Haughey and his man on the ground, Captain Kelly.
0: Of course, the guns had to be untraceable. That is, with no serial numbers. If official Irish army guns were given to the defence committees and then one of those guns was seized by the British they would know by looking at the serial numbers they had come from the Irish Republic. So the thing to do now was to find a supplier of black market guns that were impossible to trace.
1: And the first place they went to look for such a supplier was the UK. Two trips were made there in the autumn of 1969. Both were made by a man you heard about in episode three. He was the one taking the lorry overloaded with guns through Dublin Airport. Charles Haughey's brother, Jock. What happened was that Jock Haughey This is Sean Boyne,
6: author of the book Gun Runners. ...was helping with the arms procurement effort. And through a member of Fianna Fáil, Jock Haughey was introduced to this guy in an office in Oxford Street. And there was also a navigator there who, it was said, would bring the arms to Ireland on a boat or a small ship. Jock Hawhey was prepared to travel on the boat. This guy, he said, jokingly, would you be interested in smuggling Pakistani immigrants? And a year or so later, a guy was jailed in England for smuggling Pakistani immigrants.
1: So human trafficking wasn't...
6: Human trafficking was going on at that time. Uh, They were coming across the English Channel. And uh, Pakistanis who wanted to get into England were using traffickers. And uh, so I would speculate that the boat that was used to bring in the Pakistani immigrants may also have been the boat that would have been used to bring the arms to Ireland if this had worked out. But it didn't work out,
1: and Jock returned to Ireland. But then there was another name given to him, another supplier of black market guns in London. Jock was given the name by Neil Blaney,
0: that's Neil Blaney, the Irish Minister for Agriculture, who had access to the £100,000 given to Minister for Finance Charles Haughey to help the people in the north.
1: For this next trip to Britain, Jock Haughey was going with the senior Belfast
6: IRA man we met in previous episodes. Jock Haughey went out again with John Kelly. We weren't looking
4: for bandages or for blankets or whatever.
0: This is the late John Kelly, recorded in 1995 by RTE Television.
4: We were looking for arms, we were looking for the means of defence. That was clearly understood from the beginning.
0: At that time, in late 1969, John Kelly found himself where he didn't intend to be, and that was back fighting the British. He had already done that in the 1950s as part of an IRA campaign, and had been caught in 1956, arrested
7: and ended up in a Belfast prison.
0: This is his daughter, Brona.
7: He ended up in Crumlin Road prison at that time and he spent almost nine years.
0: On St Stephen's Day 1960, John Kelly took part in an escape attempt.
7: They had actually sheets tied together and they broke. Daddy fell back. Daddy lay there and Daddy was found then lying in the yard and as you can imagine, the treatment he got wasn't very good and he subsequently spent six months in solitary confinement. Crumlin Road was a harsh, harsh regime of a prison at that time. By the time
0: John Kelly was released in 1965, the IRA had announced a ceasefire
7: and he was no longer active in the organisation. Daddy had got a good job in the Kilroot power plant. Mommy was nursing. They got married. They had their own house, bought their own bungalow in Glengormley and in a school park. And, you know, I suppose how many had been involved from a very young age. I think at that stage they were making a life for themselves. They were very much part of the community. You know, mommy played the organ, Daddy sang in the choir, things like that there, you know, and then I was on the way then as well, you know, and, and things were settling down to probably what he hoped would be, you know, a happy and peaceful life. But obviously that wasn't to be either. I was at the Crumland Road last night when the first petrol bombs were
0: thrown. But the night of August the 14th, 1969, changed all that for John Kelly.
7: Protestants came
4: onto the Crumlin Road from Shankill and joined with the RUC in a fierce attack on Hooker Street. Houses were the whole situation was a doomsday situation, a situation where people were expecting to be attacked at any given time of day or night. I remember walking up the Falls Road and the whole atmosphere was... You could hear people actually walking on the road. You could hear people talking from hundreds of yards away. There was a stillness, there was an eerie feeling of impending doom, you know, it was unreal, you know.
0: John Kelly found himself on the local Citizens' Defence Committee and he was there because of his military background.
4: Because it was only Republicans, IRA people, ex-IRA people who had the knowledge of the use of arms, who knew how to organise the defence. So you, you were made to feel that you are even though you were quite willing to do it, but you were made to feel obliged that You must do it. It was your duty to do it, you know. So I think that's why a lot of Republicans who hadn't been active after 63 uh, were reactivated, you know, out of that sense of obligation, that sense of duty to their own community and to their own people.
0: So this is the John Kelly, who Minister Neil Blaney suggested should go with Jack Hawhey to the UK to buy guns.
1: Think about that for a moment they were going looking for illegal guns to a country in part of which they were planning to use those guns. Not only that, the man whose name Neil Blaney had given them sounded like he was in the British Army. Captain Peter Markham-Randall. Sean Boyne, author. And this is John Kelly on Markham-Randall.
4: who was a contact of Neil Blaney's, or at least was contacted in some way through Neil Blaney to try and arrange with him an importation of arms into Dublin.
1: Now, although this was supposed to be an entirely new trip to London to a new black market arms dealer, it transpired that it wasn't such a new trip after all, because the new dealer, Markham Randall, was connected to the previous dealer Jock had met, the man who joked about trafficking people from Pakistan, Sean Boyne,
6: author. And it turned out that Markham Randall was also a dodgy character. Now, he would know about weapons. He'd been in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps... But he was cashiered out of the army, not as a captain, but as a lieutenant some years previously. Something to do with checks, I believe.
4: We met him in Oxford Street above a shop there. John Kelly,
1: speaking in 1995.
4: It was a grubby little office. And uh, Randall, when we eventually, after, after waiting for a number of hours, maybe, I think it was about six hours, waiting for this guy to come... In the meantime, these fellows coming in out and tell us he was on his way, but it's the lead and so forth and so forth. When he eventually did appear, he was a, a kind of a trench-coated, shuffling type of guy with a briefcase and uh, who immediately told us, like, you know, we couldn't talk in here because the place was bugged, so let's move outside.
6: So these were dodgy characters talking to the guys from Ireland. Author Sean Boyne. They may have been acting for some branch of the British security services. They would not have been, with their background, they would not have been serving officers, but they may well have been informants.
4: We were suspicious from the word go, and our suspicions were well-founded because it, then we moved outside, we discovered we were being followed. Because when we came down these narrow stairs, I let Hawi and Mark Randall go before me, and I had stepped back on the pretext of tying my shoe. And so they were on the street about three minutes before me, and then when I came out, this lady had fallen behind them, and she had a headscarf on with her handbag and she was talking away into this microphone, sort of indicating the, the movements that the two boys were on, you yeah. know, so that's really how we rumbled them, like, you know, yeah. As it turned out, Michael Randall was, in our opinion, an agent uh, for MI5, MI6, a government agent, certainly, of some description, you yeah. but certainly he had no arms to give, you yeah. and was merely there on an exercise to discover Looking back to what extent the Irish government was involved in this kind of importation, you know, that's what appears to me anyway in retrospect.
0: But then this amateurish sequence took on a very sinister turn when John Kelly put a proposal to the British arms dealer.
6: They invited Markham Randall to come to Ireland and he came to Dublin and various people met him, including Captain Kelly. And John Kelly admitted that he was planning to to assassinate Markham Randall.
0: This is John Kelly speaking about that in 1995 on RTE Television.
4: I got Markham Randall to come back to Dublin under the pretext that I would take him around. He was very anxious to get acquainted with the training camps that he believed were in existence in the 26 counties, training IRA people or Republicans to go back to the North. He was keenly interested in those, so I promised him that if he came across the Dublin, I would take him on a round of these training camps. We had no intention of doing that, of course, but we wanted him back to sort of interrogate him ourselves to see exactly what he was involved in. I think (laughs) you were going to do a little bit more than interrogate him. Well, we were. (laughs) Well, we felt that if he was working for the British and was endangering people's lives, you know, that he himself should be... ask some very pertinent questions
0: Things came to a head in the Gresham Hotel in Dublin and this is where the Army Intelligence Officer Captain Kelly comes back into the story The supposed black market arms dealer Markham Randall was upstairs meeting with Belfast Republican John Kelly unaware that he was in danger Captain Kelly was downstairs waiting for the meeting to end When he found out what was being planned for Markham Randall he told John Kelly that the former British Army man was not to be harmed.
4: In the event, Jim Kelly said no. that you know, it, it wasn't acceptable, so that was the end of that.
1: And here's Captain Kelly speaking in 1995 about the threat to Markham Randall's life.
4: I saved his life on that occasion. Because there were some people who said uh, these people are going to cause us trouble eventually, because we'll have to eliminate it.
6: I said no. Captain Kelly advised him to get out of Ireland, which he did.
0: Captain Peter Markham-Randall seems to have later given up his career as a secret agent. Sean Boyne, the writer.
6: Later on, he had a very mundane job. Uh, I think he was a double-glazing salesman and was declared bankrupt at some stage. I think he passed away some years ago.
1: Despite the UK trips not working out in terms of getting guns... They did contribute to the intelligence gathering on both sides of the Irish Sea. For example, afterwards, Captain Kelly of Irish Army Intelligence was able to show the Belfast IRA man, John Kelly, two photos. One of himself.
4: Coming through Heathrow Air Terminal, you know, which had been taken on the other side, just as we landed, like you know. he also one of Jochari, which had been taken by the English special branch so obviously they knew from the beginning that we were there and, and that they were running a surveillance on us, you know. So how
1: did those photographs come to be in Jim Kelly's position?
4: Well, I assume because he was army intelligence that he would be privy to whatever exchange of information there was between the British and the Irish intelligence authorities.
1: And while those photos of Jock Houghy and John Kelly in London showed Irish army intelligence how much the British intelligence knew Those same photos also gave the British important information about the possible involvement of members of the Irish government in the
6: whole business. Through that connection, the British would have known that the brother of the finance minister in Ireland was trying to source arms, obviously for use in the north.
1: Perhaps understandably, that's the last we hear of jock trying to buy guns in Britain. But it wasn't the end of the British interest in him. For some time afterwards, he was under surveillance, even when he went on holiday with his wife. This is their daughter, Kiva.
8: They stayed in a beautiful hotel in the Algarve in Portugal and everywhere they went, this man went and he was particularly noticeable in the mornings and in the evenings in the dining room. Because he always sat alone, and there was no chat out of him. And now, in fairness, my dad had a good sense—if not a wicked sense—of humour, and um, there was no knocking any crack out of him, let alone conversation. I mean, I suppose Irish people are great for engaging in the chat and how's the weather and so on and so forth. But this this man was very reserved, uh, almost sort of uncomfortably so. He was there to do a job, and uh, he wasn't going to engage. The one thing my mother remembers distinctly about this gentleman that he had a pension for ordering lobster for dinner every night and I think that bemused my parents who were probably on quite a strict budget but anyway so he stayed with them for the trip and uh, when they left he left and they do remember him in their company on the way back through England and at one stage in the airport they were going one way to I suppose follow wherever they were going and he suddenly disappeared and that was the end of him. But it has subsequently been established. He was an MI5 agent and he was telling my father.
0: And I mean, I suppose, like, it's it's a funny anecdote now in retrospect and the lobster and all that. But at the time,
8: it must have been quite unnerving. Yes, I would imagine it was uncomfortable for them and what was it about and where it was, what was it going to lead to. But I think they took it in their stride and probably in some Regard Nicolene didn't take it too seriously because at the end of the day they were on holiday.
0: It turns out it's not that easy to get guns and bring them illegally into the country. After the failed attempts to get guns in Britain, John Kelly travelled to the US to try to buy guns.
4: Our view, that's the Republican view, was that, that you're better dealing with your own people, you know, rather than dealing with foreigners, Germans, Italians, French, English, whatever that you're more secure in dealing with your own people. So we believed, and Blaney agreed at that time, that we should go, and Jim Kelly, that should go on suicide, the the, the scene in America, which he did in December of 69. And they, in America, had the expertise.
0: One of those American experts is Patrick Knee, a convicted mobster and gun smuggler. He didn't start smuggling guns until the mid-1970s, but he gives us an insight into the kinds of weapons people like John Kelly came to the US for.
6: Talking uh,
1: pistols, a lot of pistols. There was a special request once for uh, derringers, I think, three derringers. We got those for them. Rifles, forty-five caliber grease guns. That's just the nickname for them, with silencers, but they were military grade. We test fired them out my back window when the neighbors were having a cookout, and they didn't even look in our direction. So they were very effective. Uh, body armor. They'd come by, they'd have a list of different types of body armour they wanted, but mostly pistols and rifles.
0: Despite the ready availability of such guns in the US, John Kelly's trip there in December 1969 hit a snag. And this time, it wasn't the British who were interfering.
4: We had arranged for the transfer of the monies to New York. By that time, we had arranged with another well-known Republican for the purchase of the arms he had that arranged from a Canadian contact. We had arranged the shipping from New York in a container back to Dublin. So all that had been set up and uh, when we got back to Dublin we were disappointed to find that it had been hit in the head, that Jim Kelly said no, Blaney said no, it would be much quicker to go to the continent, you know, it would take so much time to get across from New York to Dublin. So that was put to one side. we were disappointed about that, I must say, you know, because we had everything intact and everything arranged. What, what did you think was going on? I mean, why do you think Blaney was so keen and, and Kelly so keen that you had to deal in the continent? Was
2: it because it was there?
4: I think I think perhaps they felt that, that they would have more control, you know, uh, coming from the continent rather than coming from America where things would have been in total control of Republicans, IRA, Irish Americans and they would have had little control over it. I think that possibly was their main concern at
1: that time. But going to the European continent for guns was a different proposition altogether. Whereas in the US, John Kelly knew plenty of Irish Americans with Republican sympathies who could help him get guns, he knew no one like that in Europe. But Minister Neil Blaney had yet another name of a dealer who could provide untraceable guns. This man was in Hamburg in Germany and his name was Otto Schlüter. Otter Schlüter didn't seem too particular about which side in a war he sold guns to. This led to two bombing attempts on his life in the 1950s. One killed his business associate, the other killed his mother.
0: Herr Schlüter was about to become famous in the 1970s, but not because of the Irish arms crisis or as Otter Schlüter, but as a character in a novel by one of the most successful thriller writers of the time, Frederick Forsyth.
3: It's Frederick Forsyth, you wanted to call me.
0: Herr Schluter. Herr Schluter, yes.
1: <laughs> you, you remember Herr Schluter.
3: Yeah, I do indeed, yes. He tried to get me, well, he didn't get killed or beaten up.
1: <laughs> Did he?
0: Oh, yeah.
3: I was researching a book called The Dogs of War.
0: Here's another example of confusion or deliberate muzziness, if you will. The British writer, Frederick Forsyth, pretended that he was a South African.
3: Um, got into his inner circle by pretending that I was representing a, a very rich South African entrepreneur who wished to mount a coup in Africa
1: uh-huh.
3: and to that end wished to buy a, a substantial package of weaponry.
0: He wasn't going to buy any weaponry. He just wanted to find out how someone like Otter Schluter operated so that his new novel could be as close to real life as possible when talking about the trade in black market guns.
3: I wanted to know where he got them from and how he got them and how he shipped them. Uh Which he revealed to me as I made it plain that my sponsor would need to know these things to make sure he was dealing with a reputable, albeit black market, arms dealer. Uh Where he was getting the stuff from, was it going to be quality stuff or junk? And He was very eager to tell me it was very quality stuff.
0: What Frederick Forsyth didn't know was that the German version of his bestseller, Day of the Jackal, had just been published and the bookshops were promoting it heavily. Not only that, he was shown in a full-sized photograph on the back of each of his books. And because of this, Otto Schluter was about to find out something about the young South African man he had just met. He was about to discover he wasn't a representative of someone trying to start a war, but a best-selling author.
8: And he
3: was sitting in his limousine at a traffic light stationary and next him was a bookstore and one book had fallen over. And on the back <laughs> was young, young Frederick van der Beyl. Right. And he suddenly realized that this guy was an imposter. Wow. So the next thing I know, a very cultured British voice came on the phone in my hotel and said, I don't know what you're doing, but get the hell out of there like now. And I, I knew it was a fellow Brit, and I suspected that another of those around the table had been there for... British MI6, or and the, possibly MI5.
1: Uh, was this in a restaurant or in, a, in an office? No, 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 we were meeting in an office. Okay. Uh, I don't
3: know why, he was very indiscreet because he had more than one potential customer around the table. And clearly the other Brit, the spook, <laughs> had recognized the author because he probably read
1: Jackal already. Sure.
3: And he got the tip that um, uh, Schluter was going to send men to sort me out.
1: And you got out. And,
3: uh, so, well, yes. The voice on the phone said, "Get the hell out of there, like now." So I, I didn't pack or put clothes in the bag, and I just didn't even. I just grabbed money, passport, and ran. Mm. And I was I was in a hotel, and the railway station in Al- Altona was across the square from me. So I ran into the station and uh, I didn't even go to the ticket office because apparently the guys were behind me. I learned later that my room was indeed invaded by some very heavy-looking guys who were not in a good mood. <laughs> but by then I shot through an open window of a moving train. And uh, so I got out of, out of Hamburg that way. So that was my my, my, my uh, accrochage, I think the French called it, with um, my run-in with uh, a sleuter.
1: One of the Irish army officers went over to Hamburg and tried to buy guns and they dealt with Schluter and they didn't think he was trustworthy. They were wary of oh, him. They
3: were quite, they were quite right. <laughs> he, was a, he was a fox a rogue.
0: So this man, Herr Schluter. This was the man that Minister Neil Blaney told John Kelly to go and meet in Germany to secretly procure weapons for the Irish government. How did he get on?
1: Find out next time in Gunplot. Oh, and if you think things get any less muzzy later in the series, have a listen to this from Minister Neil Blaney.
6: The charge that I had imported arms and that I had sent people to the continent to get arms, those were untrue allegations. They're still untrue. And Mr Lynch neither has the evidence nor could he ever have had it.
0: Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistance from the documentary on one team.
1: By the way, those interviews from the 1995 RTE TV series were conducted by Mike Mallott.
0: And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot and available on the RTE Player.
1: We live in trouble You've been listening to Gunplot,
0: an RTE documentary on one production.